When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the podcast, we revisit these ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here expecting to discuss. I'm very, very happy to be here today with Sarah W. Goldhagen. She taught for 10 years at Harvard's Graduate School of Design and spent many years as the architecture critic for the New Republic. She's written about buildings, cities, and landscapes for publications all over the world. Sarah's new book, Welcome to Your World, How the Built Environment Shapes Our Lives, is a thoroughly entertaining, eye-opening manifesto arguing that the buildings we live and work in deeply affect us and we can't afford the crummy design that we mostly subject ourselves to. Welcome to Think Again, Sarah. Thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. It's so good to have you here. Your book was interesting to me for all kinds of reasons, but one of them is that I generally consider myself an aware and open-minded kind of person, but I think I'm pretty obtuse when it comes to my lived environment. I'm not that aware of the physical spaces around me, but your book argues that that's most of us. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're wired not to be aware of the physical spaces around us most of the time because we're busy living our lives and creating goals, executing the goals. I mean, little goals like going to brush your teeth and right. bigger goals like going to college or whatever. And uh, the built environment is inert. So there, there are myriad reasons why the built environment is not on people's radar screens, really, right. at all. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's not affecting us. Yeah, I mean, your book argues that it affects us profoundly and, you know, that basically what we now know about from cognitive science about what, what's called embodied cognition, mm -hmm. basically how our bodies think in a way or how we think via our bodies shows us that the lived environment has an enormous impact on our lives. Completely. And in ways, in surprising ways, in ways that that aren't conceptualized. I mean, I came from this from uh, the point of view of being an architecture critic. And right. I write about landscapes and architecture and so on. And so a lot of this material that I was working with was not on the built environment per se. It's just that if you read it through my lens, you could see how important the built environment ended up being. I mean, let's take, for example, the way that we encode and 
and store long-term, auto, particularly autobiographical memories. Right. It turns out that in order to store an autobiographical memory, you actually use the same neural pathways as you do when, for two things, place recognition on the one hand and spatial navigation on okay. the other. People think that part of the reason that kids before the age of three don't have any long-term autobiographical memories really is because their facility for spatial navigation and, sp and place recognition is not very well developed yet. Okay. So those two things coincide for obvious reasons, which is that they use the same pathways. And what that means is that our very sense of ourselves, uh, the development of our sense of identity happens through our experiences in space. And if it makes perfect sense, if you think about like childhood memories or right. things like that, there's always something of place. What, what is that? I mean, so when you're talking about autobiographical memory, I'm, I'm also thinking about narrative. Like we tend to organize our lives in story form. This happened, right. then that happened. So what is the relationship there? Like how does narrative memory come into play? You know, these little memories are kind of little slices. Like I was sitting on the floor playing with my brother and the light was coming in right. from the left or something like that, right? Yeah. But those little slices are the things that we as narrators, because we have a narrative memory, use to create a sense of identity, to, to build the story of who we are. I, I think, you know, if I think about my own childhood, I grew up in a suburb of DC, in Bethesda, Maryland. Mm -hmm. My house was like your childhood home that you have a photograph of in the book. I think beautifully designed. It was, mm -hmm. uh, the architect was named Melkin. Her name is written, was written under the bar. Oh. Um, yeah, and it was like, you know, it was like a modern, open kind of plan, mm -hmm. multi-story thing embedded in the woods. And so like that physical environment was amazing. And I spent a lot of time in the woods as well mm -hmm. growing up. At the same time, when I think back on my childhood, I think the earliest memories that I have of sort of culture and other people mattering, it was the mall. You know, that was the center of culture where uh -huh. we were. So on the one hand, you had this beautiful physical environment, you had the attachment to the woods, and on the other hand, this sense of like isolation and everybody in right. their own cul-de-sac. You know? I mean, like, suburbs are, most suburbs are planned to enforce that sense of isolation, which actually I also felt in my beautiful house where I right, grew up. Right. Um, they're made for people who get themselves to other places in cars. And there's a quietude and a sense of repetition and sameness in right. suburbs because a lot of them are developments, so the houses look pretty much the same because that is what developers think are economical to build. Right. And it can be very soul deadening. I mean, this is sort of well known yeah. um, because you, you you know, particularly if you're in a situation where the nuclear family in which you're being raised is not a happy family. I mean, that's a pretty toxic situation sure. where you're stuck in this house with <laughs> right. nobody around right, right, right. and no recourse. As opposed to, you know, Hillary Clinton has this line of it takes a village to raise a kid. You know, if you didn't like your mom, you went out and spent time with your aunt or your someone else, and they were all kind of within proximity and responsible for you in another way. It also reinforces a certain kind of cultural or, or social idea of 
basically my house, my stuff, my property versus yours. Absolutely. Like, like, yes, and people become over-identified with the things that they have. Um, they, and then suburbs are not the best places to breed a sense of tolerance for diversity. Right. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> to put exactly. it in the most gentle way. <laughs> right. And cities can be challenging too, but we'll get to that in a yeah, second. Sure. Before that, I, I wanted to ask you if you could read a short passage. I, I was reading um, uh, some of Chekhov's short stories, and this one is called A Boring Story. And I just happened to be reading this at the same time as I was reading anything but boring actually but <laughs> I, I was reading it at the same time as I was reading your book and this this paragraph struck me as being very closely related to what you're talking about so sure yeah and here are the gloomy university gates which have long needed repair the bored caretaker in the sheepskin coat his besom the heaps of snow such gates cannot make a healthy impression on a fresh boy coming from the provinces, who imagines that the temple of learning really is a temple. In the history of Russian pessimism, the general decrepitude of the university buildings, the gloomy corridors, the grimy walls, the inadequate light, the dismal look of the stairs, cloakrooms and benches, occupy one of the foremost places in the series of causes predisposing, and here's our garden. It seems to have become neither better nor worse since I was a student. I don't like it. It would be much smarter if, instead of consumptive lindens, yellow acacias, and sparse-trimmed lilacs, there were tall pine trees and handsome oaks growing here. The student, whose mood is largely created by the surroundings of his place of learning, should see at every step only the lofty, the strong, the graceful, God save him from scrawny trees, broken windows, gray walls, and doors upholstered with torn oilcloth. I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's just perfect. I mean, yeah. He, he's, he, I mean, he's, you know, he's intuited pretty much exactly the same thing that, that you're talking about. And I guess my, my question is, or the question that that raises is, why the disconnect? Why are so many spaces that are ostensibly designed for one thing, like learning and encouraging the life of the mind, so poor at, at mm -hmm. facilitating whatever it is that they're designed for? Like, there, why, no, why? there are a number of different reasons yeah. <laughs> for that. The first comes back to the first thing that we talked about, which is that people are not generally aware of their built environments. Right. And even though it's influencing their moods, as Chekhov so beautifully describes and so on, I would venture to say they almost never attribute the moods that they're feeling to the environments that they're in. Right. Or the things that they're thinking to the environments that they're in. Because much of embodied cognition, which is what the Bert the book uh, is sort of grounded in theoretically, right. uh, is non-conscious. So one, people don't think environments are important because they don't process them as being important, even right. though they are. The second is that the market facilitates bad design and nobody's stopping them. And yet you point out that like good design doesn't have to always be expensive. No, not at all. You can have good design at any level of investment. Right. It takes just as much money, in fact, to build a bad building as it does to build a good building or landscape or urban streetscape or whatever. So I mean, how does the market push bad design? Like what, what is it about the market that makes bad design? Much of the market was created when 
mass production techniques were spewing out materials that were not really oriented toward human experience and the okay. way people experience those places. And although we now have the technologies to really use mass production to make much better environments, but the market really hasn't caught up to that. So you're still using stock floor plans in suburban developments, and you take two or three floor plans and you just kind of plop the houses down with exactly the same floor plan. In fact, we because of big data, because of technology, because of new uh, computer-aided design techniques, you can make environments that are much more inflected to the site and to the people who use them than you used to be able to, but the market has not caught up to that yet, right. in part because nobody really understands or very few people understand that it actually matters. One thing that's fascinating to me is it's like even materials that one thinks of as soulless and convenient to builders like mm -hmm. concrete can be used in incredibly creative ways, like depending on, like they, they can actually create wonderful environments. I guess, um, am I thinking of the right architect? Is it Le Corbusier? Who's the one that sort of church with the cave-like windows? Oh, well, that's Le Corbusier. Uh, yeah, Le Corbusier. Yeah, that's the uh, chapel Cathedral. at Ronchamp in France. Ronchamp, isn't it yeah. mostly made of concrete? That huge monolithic wall is actually sprayed concrete over a mesh. It's not nearly as heavy as okay. it looks, but parts of it are parts of it are built with rubble from the old church that right. was bombed on the site. You can do incredible things in concrete. I mean, there are, I've I've gone into buildings where the concrete really looks like velvet right. on the walls, and it's so soft to the touch and beautiful. And as we all know, you can do terrible things with concrete. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so it's really about the like intelligence and the intention that goes into design, basically the human intellect and, and, and the intention. Right. It goes into how the designer designs. Right. That's absolutely, that's the first thing. But it's also the construction industry. You could be the best designer and you could design really sensitive details with good materials and so on. But if your contractor is not interested in executing those details or does them sloppily or so on, right. and the person who's funding is not overseeing, then it could still end up being not great. One thing that occurred to me, one analogy, you know, I was trying to think of like things that affect us unconsciously or that where the time scale of you know cause and effect is such that it's difficult for us to process and therefore we ignore them you know i was thinking of nutrition and how sort of in the 1960s the idea of eating healthy was sort of a fringe hippie idea you know and now it seems to have entered the mainstream so i was you know, i was wondering whether analogically you know that that is to say kale is everywhere acacia right. bowls are everywhere right. whatever Architecture might be similar. I mean, that through things like your book, the idea of embodied cognition trickling down through the uh -huh. culture, whether you think that there's actually a real hope of significant change in terms of our awareness and the extent I, to which we... I absolutely think there's a real hope. I wouldn't have spent all this yeah. time writing this book if I didn't think of it. But it's really funny that you think of that analogy because when I first handed in my manuscript, I sent it to my agent right. first, before I sent it to my editor, and he read it, and his first line is, in the letter was, I feel as though what was done for food 
in the 60s and 70s is what you're doing for the built environment. Okay. It's perfect. It's exactly the same analogy. It was kind of this fringe thing, and people said, ah, come on, it really doesn't matter. I mean, what I grew up eating, oh my God. Yeah, right. Me right? Too. Horrible. And now... Actually, Mom, I'm sorry. Uh, you, you were pretty good, actually, i got to say. But, yeah. <laughs> oh, my mom's passed away, so I can say that. I, mean, I grew up eating Captain Crunch. So. <laughs> anyway, it's, you know, and in the 70s, there were still, there were some people who were doing it, but nothing. And now what's really cr the critical piece of this is it's influencing public policy. Right. Some people will say, you know, I'm a little bit of a dreamer. I think that we could change the building. Yeah. But w the big argument in the book, or one of them is, you know, we have to change how we value the built environment. Right. And once people realize how important it is to the development of cognition, to emotions, to mental health, to emotional well-being, to worker productivity, to all these different things, people will begin to value it differently and then you'll begin to see policy changes. When you see the studies on cognitive development right. and the built environment, you know, you want to be smart, oh, right? Sure. You want right. your kids to be smart. You want your kids yeah, yeah. to have, I mean, higher IQ scores, all right. this stuff. Well, you know, it's hard to argue with that. There's a business case to be made. Totally, yeah. <laughs> totally. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, I think the last thing I wanted to talk about before we get to the surprise clips is different cities. Like, you know, the, the city itself, the urban environment, like humans are moving in exponentially larger numbers into mm -hmm. cities. I'm struck by, and you talk a little bit about this in the book, some of the fundamental differences in cities, which I, they're designed, but maybe not intentionally so. Mm -hmm. New York, uh, the, for me, the, the big dichotomy is New York versus Istanbul. My wife is Turkish, I, oh. I've, so I've spent a fair amount of time in Istanbul. Mm -hmm. And I was struck the first time I went there by the fact that the Bosphorus, which mm -hmm. is, for anyone who might not know in the audience, is basically a strait connecting two seas that runs down the middle of the city, is very much the soul of the city. Mm -hmm. People are going back and forth in ferries, there's cafes, it's casually accessible, you can sit down and have a tea for mm -hmm. a, very, you know, a dollar. In New York, until very recently, the water was essentially invisible to us. I mean, like they're starting to reclaim it, right? Yeah, I mean, if you take New York over a period of time, it's really a perfect example. I don't know if you know, but I just published a long article right. about the reconfiguration of New York City and orienting it toward the waterfront. So when I first lived in New York in the 1980s, I had a friend who came from a really, really small town in Canada, and we were both in the graduate program at Columbia, and she lived near 125th Street, right. uh, in between Riverside Park and Broadway. And there um, at 116th Street, I think, is where the subway comes out of the ground. Okay. And so for the first week that she walked from her apartment down to the art history department, where we were your graduate students, she heard this kind of rumbling and she thought, oh, isn't that great? I can hear the water. <laughs> <laughs> I could hear the water, and then she it's walked down to Broadway, and it was the subway coming out of the ground. I mean, that was how totally disconnected the city was That's from funny. the water. You know, none of us had any experience, really, or very much experience of the water at all, and now it's everywhere. I mean, we bike down these paths, yeah. we walk into the river at the heat, uh, in the Brooklyn Bridge Park and so on, and it totally changes. Who do we have to 
who's the genius behind that shift? Because I mean, I know we have Robert Moses to blame for the fact that uh -huh. like the highways ran along the water and therefore we never had, you know, they were cut right. off. Right. Who I'm, like what when did this shift happen? I, I just thought uh, blaming Robert Moses is sort of convenient. <laughs> it's kind of like blaming your mother, you know, for <laughs> I mean, anything bad that happens, we well, can blame on Moses. I mean, he did a lot of bad. He did a lot, a lot of bad. It's know. true. <laughs> no, completely true. Really, Mayor Bloomberg uh, uh, oh, okay. is, um, I mean, some of the now parks started to come into being before Bloomberg right. was mayor, but he really accelerated and pushed the parks a lot. He planted, I can't remember how many trees, a figurative zillion trees in the <laughs> okay. city, pushed a lot of these parks, pushed Governor's Island, supported the Brooklyn Bridge Park, supported the park that runs along the West Side Highway. Bloomberg is someone who really gets the built environment as a shaper of human experience. Yeah, I mean, in you know, in the case of Istanbul, like it's it's in the poetry, it's in the anyone you talk to from that city, they revere right. the Bosphorus. It's it's just interesting that we that we here could live for so long. I mean, I I didn't even realize it until I went there at maybe age. 29 mm -hmm. and then came back to New York was yeah. like, wait, I live on an island. Right. Yeah. Right. I had the same experience <laughs> when I moved to Boston. Yeah. Because Boston is a city that really is so much more oriented toward the toward the ocean and the waterfront and yeah. the Charles River. And I just thought, wow, you know, water's a water's an integral part of this city and it should be of New York and now it's becoming that. Now way. it is, yeah. yeah. Um you you talk about this very briefly. I mean, your your core argument is that is that a lot of these effects are universal. I mean, that you know the way that a an enclosed space or an open space mm -hmm. or light or the shape of a building affect us is universal to humans. But it kept occurring to me that some of these things must vary across culture and across time. You know, for example, the Parthenon. You talk about the feeling that the Parthenon inspires yeah. in you when you look at it. For young kid or someone who's not like a, a student of history, and again, maybe these things are visceral, maybe mm -hmm. we don't know, but there can be a feeling of sort of boring, old, remote. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, sure. I, to yeah. be crass about it, yeah. like, you know, and I just, I just wonder whether what looks strong and noble uh -huh. in one time and place mm -hmm. looks cold and grown up and too serious in another right. or whatever. Right, right. You know. No, I, I mean, it, look, it's a good point. And of course, these things vary, they vary by gender. Some of these things we know vary by mm. gender. Women prefer, in their homes, women prefer smaller, more kind of, Cozy. in cozy spaces, yeah. they do. And men prefer more open and monumental spaces. And your example of a kid looking at the Parthenon <laughs> and thinking, why did I have to walk all this way? <laughs> I think, sure, absolutely. I'll answer that question with a little bit of autobiography, which is I come out of the academy and right. I spent, because of the way the academy has been in the last 20 years, I spent a ton of time thinking about cultural difference and identity sure. and uh, the different experiences and how a French 18th century person couldn't possibly be thinking the same way as a 20th century, late 20th century American graduate student or right. whatever. At a certain point I thought, you know, all those differences are there, but what really is the percentage of what's different and what's not different? After all, we all do live in bodies 
these kind of cognitive schemas that we develop are based on the fact that humans live in bodies and right. humans' bodies, although you look different from me and so on and so forth, pretty much look the same and function the same way in the environment and we all have brains that develop these synapses and so on. And evolutionarily, like our, Completely. our meaningful history is relatively the same. Right, you know? yeah. right, and short. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I thought, you know, I've spent 20 years thinking about what's different, and now I want to look at what's not different. Yeah, well, and that's that's where I guess the empirical sciences Correct. help us, you know, what's actually going on in the brain and the body. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, I think on that note, let's, let's move on to the, um, to the surprise clips, which I have not seen. I don't know what they are. They're okay. chosen by the video team. So the first one is Jeffrey Sachs, and he's at Columbia. I believe he's a sociologist, and this... He's an economist, Oh, I think. oops. That's okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> Jeffrey Sachs is an economist, perhaps, um, at Columbia, and this video is titled, America's Next Moonshot Cut Poverty 50% by 2030. Okay. All right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The best thing a society can do is set a bold goal and think about how to achieve it and go for it. I just love that idea of governance. Of course, I grew up with it. President Kennedy, in my youth, said to the Congress, he said, I believe that America should adopt the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. President Kennedy said, we have a big goal, let's go to the moon and back, and let's do it this decade. And you know, the engineers and the scientists said, that's pretty cool. And the Congress said, that's something good for us to invest in. And within the decade, of course, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. We had a transformation of space science, of communications technology, of semiconductor capacity, of computation, that were all spin-offs of that wonderful adventure. Now, I know that when President Kennedy said that, there was no plan for how to do it. I believe we absolutely should have such bold goals for our country. By 2030, let's cut the poverty at least by half. By 2030, let's cut the inequality in our country decisively so it's like the Northern European countries, not like this god-awful inequality that we have in the United States. By 2030, let's move decisively to renewable energy. These are all achievable goals. If you can land a man on the moon between May 1961 and the summer of 1969, don't tell me we can't transform our energy system to save the planet. Of course we can. Big ideas, optimistic ideas that are then tethered to goals right. is precisely what I'm trying to get at, as, uh, precisely. So 
all the goals that he let out, cut poverty by 50% by right. 2030. I mean, those are, those are noble goals. I would add to those goals an improvement in the built environment for everyday people by, we can certainly do it by 2030. I mean, people are building every day. Right. They can build a different way. They can start to rethink it from what the ground would, up. You know, so we've got these cities like Dubai that people just build in the middle of nowhere. Yep. And so those obviously present rare opportunities to like get it right mm -hmm. this time, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but like with these places where most of us live, you know, Tokyo, Paris, yep. uh, New York, what, would an architectural, you know, built environment moonshot look like? I mean, what's possible, uh, mm -hmm. say, if we wanted to be really optimistic? Well, I mean, you could talk about the design elements of that, and you can talk about the policy elements of that. The okay. policy elements of that are building codes, zoning codes, all sorts of legislative things need to re-examine whether what they're doing is supporting human experience right. or hurting it. Um, and that's not a lens through which these codes are written, and they have a lot of influence on the way that things are built and designed. Right. Encouraging policymakers to recognize the value in the built environment and to push for better design. I mean, there are mayors out there, Mayor Bloomberg. Uh, uh, so those are some policy considerations. You can encourage the manufacturers of materials through various financial incentives and so on to create better materials right. um, that that support human experience in a richer way. Okay, so those are some policy ideas. And then the design ideas, one of them is really quite simple, which is that architects are trained, you know, they're really trained to think about form. Uh, right. sort of large-scale aggregate form and okay. how a building looks and spaces. And then they learn other things about spatial sequence. They certainly do. But the determination of what materials a building is going to be constructed with, what spaces are, how really are going to be configured and so on, that comes way down the line. And one of the things that my research really brought home to me was how much more important the surfaces that we live in are and right. the materials that we live in are to our emotional connections to places, to our the formation of memories that we have to places then I think even some designers really recognize and understand. Right. Um, when you say surfaces, do, are you referring specifically to like the tactile and patterned quality of them are just like? Uh, the tactile quality, the pattern quality of them, the reflective quality of them, the acoustical properties mm -hmm. that they bring. I mean, this is one of the, the acoustics is actually one of the problems with, let's say, simulated wood versus real wood. Okay. Okay, so if you think about like, um, I don't know, particle board or something with a veneer of wood over it. Right. And then you take that same kind of wood and you take a block of wood. Huh. They'll have completely different tactile and acoustical properties. Oh, that's interesting. And I'm thinking, you know, it's occurring to me that like in wood, the human voice resonates in a very warmer Correct. sort of... And so in a way, we are diminished as people if we're in an environment that acoustically damps us down. Completely, completely. Yeah. And I mean, another one of the implications of the book is that 
the ways that people think about and the ways that some designers design the built environment is far, far too focused on the visual alone. Right. And in fact, I mean, there's, we, we are never using just one sensory portal. And so it just doesn't cut it to have a wood, even the best simulation of wood on the planet, if you don't have all those other things, the way it feels, the way it touches, the way it sounds, mm. things like that, because these have an impact on us, even though we don't, we're not really most of the time aware of it. You, you gave an example of like a, a, the London, is it a pavilion or something that they oh, do? Oh, the Serpentine Pavilion. Yeah, that's just that like scary just, building. Like the, <laughs> totally different from what the architect wanted it to be. Right. But he do, didn't know these things. So, I mean, yes, exactly. Um, many designers, and there are market reasons for this, which are completely comprehensible. Mm -hmm. But if we problematize them, I think we can begin to change them. They're trained to focus first on form, and they're also, because design is often sort of has, particularly design of buildings, has a little bit of a foot, or let's say half a foot, or a tap of a foot <laughs> in technology and engineering and things right. like that, but the other foot, and in fact two feet very often, firmly based in the humanities. Mm -hmm. They don't have access to the information that would help them to in design more environmentally sensitive spaces. Right. That's one thing. The second thing is that the influence of photography on the market for design mm. is really huge. And photography only shows you your visual, and gotcha. often at a totally different scale, your visual experience or one shot at one time of day of your visual experience of right. a certain building. And so there are a lot of things that inadvertently discourage architects right. from focusing on the human experience. The third is that because it has one foot or two feet in the humanities, is that human experience is seen to be subjective. Right. Like, you can't really talk about that. You know, isn't it all just subjective? And that's one of the things I do in the book is I reframe human experience as cognition. Right. Uh, now, we know a ton about cognition. You know, we may not be able to talk about human experience, but what we certainly can talk about is cognition, and we know a ton about it. What's interesting is, you know, so visually we do, uh, our, our, our minds have a need, uh, as you talk about in the book, for, you know, we want to be stimulated. We want the visual environment and yeah. the tactile envir environment to be interesting, you know. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if there are certain kind of universal principles, right? Right. Like we want a cozy space alternating mm -hmm. with a communal space or right. whatever, then certain elements of architecture from that standpoint might, I'm not saying that like all buildings would be the same, but might get somewhat standardized. Mm -hmm. If architects are thinking about standing out and always doing something different, you know, there may be certain things that it's good to do the same way, roughly, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there. this is a question I struggled with a lot okay. in the book, and particularly when I would talk to my ideas with designers, architects, landscape architects, whatever, they would be like, oh, whoa, you're going to tell me what to do, and that's <laughs> not good at all. I really, that's bad. I don't want to go there, right? There is such latitude in right. the principles that I'm laying out 
that it's not it should be liberating in a way right. <laughs> not constraining absolutely i mean there are certain like dumb things you shouldn't do right, right. like you shouldn't if you want a pavilion that makes people feel warm and cozy and like amorous toward one another or something, you shouldn't design it with sharp angles and red floors and red right, ceilings because right, right. that's a mistake, right? But the mistakes are a lot less important than just understanding the principles. I mean, I have a whole chapter in the book where I talk about the use of natural light right. and the use of this principle of patterned complexity. Well, right. you know, Architects deal with patterns all the time. They have to, right? And so the question is, what kind of pattern do they use? And what kind of complexity do they introduce to that in that pattern, both visually and over the course of the day as the light changes and so on and so forth? So I don't see these as restrictive principles There's a lot all. of freedom within There's whatever the constraints might be. Yes. So we won't all end up in those future environments that you see in sci-fi movies of enlightened <laughs> societies where it's always like a white round bubble. Right, right. right. No, no, we, we couldn't yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah, we, we wouldn't tolerate it, would we? Uh, hopefully. <laughs> um, all right, so let's see, let's see what, the, okay. um, what the second and final clip is going to be. I think we've got... Um, this is Alison Gopnik. Um, uh-huh, oh, she's great. Psychologist. Yeah, yeah. And it's, what schools don't understand about children's minds, mm -hmm. it's called. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You know, I think the stuff that I study most, which is the babies and infants, that seems to be something that's, that's so deeply built in that we see very great commonalities across cultures um, in that respect. It's interesting, when you start thinking about the school age period, we have pretty good reason to believe that for most of human history, the way that babies and children made that transition was through a kind of process of apprenticeship. So the way the children learned the skills that they needed was they practiced them, they had other people around who, who corrected them, they saw people who were doing the things that were important, they could imitate them, they could practice a little bit. And in fact, if you think about how we teach kids to cook or how we teach kids to dance or how we teach kids to play basketball, those are all examples where we still use those kinds of teaching techniques. Now, we don't do that typically in schools. So in schools, you know, children are not learning to write from people who are writers or by watching people who write. They're not learning how to do math from people who are mathematicians. There's this kind of weird special thing that we have, which is, which is school, which is very different from the ways that I think human beings have ever uh, learned before. Um, one of the things that I say is, imagine if we taught baseball the way we teach science, right? So the first all through school, what you would do is read about great bas baseball players. And then in college, you might get to actually replicate the occasional great baseball game, you know, and you'd have pitching drills where you just throw the same ball over and over and over again. And you'd never play the game until you got to graduate school. I thought we could maybe talk about the physical environment of, of schools and mm -hmm. education. My, you, you live in East Harlem. My son goes to school in East Harlem. And the, oh, really? This big, giant school complex. Yeah, I think there. I know what you're talking about. And it looks to me like 
a prison. It hurts my heart that he has to walk into that gigantic mm-hmm. brick. And then, of course, they've all got those metal window guards oh, on yeah. them. And I don't know if, we, you know, maybe we can start there. Like, what the physical environment of our schools do to our kids and education or... I mean, this is interesting. It's actually one of the areas where there has been a fair amount of research on this. And we know, I mean, there are studies that show uh, schools, all right, this was actually a school, a a study that was located in East Harlem, uh, where one set of classrooms were looking out over the elevated train. And then another set of classrooms across the hallway were not looking out. Okay, so same grades, same same socioeconomic. The other didn't have windows, or they it were... had internal windows, okay. right? But they were quiet, okay. right? And you so no trains coming by. So same school, same socioeconomic group, same set of teachers, and so on and so forth. Over the course of the year, the students in the classrooms that overlooked this really noisy train that came at unpredictable times. Mm-hmm had much less good attention, scored less well on tests, had much had many more behavioral problems. Right. And so there's an example of that's what part of the reason I use the term built environment rather than just buildings and and I write about all of these different things right. is that that wasn't even in the building. Right. Thing, right? It right. was outside the building, but of course they could have done things to mitigate the noise, but nobody really understood how much just the fact that those trains are coming by and they're coming by at unpredictable times and they're disruptive and it's hard to hear the teacher over them and it takes your attention away Hmm. had such a big impact on the education of the students. Well, what's interesting, and this takes us back to the sort of cultural thing I was talking about and historical thing, you know, I think of like those one-room Puritan schoolhouses in the early history of America. And, you know, there, I would think that the austerity and the Mm -hmm. sort of uncomfortableness of the environment, you know, are actually value-based. Like that, Mm -hmm. that, you know, the children will learn better because they will be Mm -hmm. disciplined. You know, too much comfort will turn them namby-pamby or something, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah, well, you were talking before about, you know, the ways that things change. I mean, that's a perfect example of cultural values shifting and then shifting at least the way environments are supposed to be designed, educational environments, even though a lot of them are so awful, really so awful. There's this one study which I really love, which compared a classroom that had linoleum floors, cement block walls, hard metal desks, and so on, but arranged in a circle, okay, because these were like middle school students or something, I don't really remember. And then they put them in a different classroom, I think, or they took the same classroom, I'm not really sure, and they put rugs in there and couches across the the thing and they turned it into what they call the soft classroom. So hard classroom versus soft classroom. Students participated more, they were less distracted, they were more invested in learning by sitting in a a soft classroom. And I mean, I see that, you know, in my son's classroom and in many, many of the, you know, this is something that has happened in the New York City school system over the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years is that there's been a lot of attention to, because they can't change the buildings uh, too much, there's been a lot of attention to the internal environment and Mm -hmm. the, you know, students writing colorful, making colorful things and decorating the classroom with them and rugs and so on. But I think there's, 
I think there's this fundamental kind of ideological tension that exists, at least in the New York City schools, and this may be in American public education generally, between open inquiry on the one yeah. hand and sort of rigor on the other. And I think that the forces that that are focused on rigor mm-hmm. maybe pull us away from better physical environments. You know, maybe would prefer the children to be sitting Sitting at attention well, on hard benches right, and so on. Yeah. Right. But then, you know, again, here, here's a way in which design could help that because if you have an environment that's order that's well ordered, right. that imposes a certain kind of calm and right. a, a sense that a sense that the world is an orderly place, that humans are in control, right? right. And so I can imagine, I don't know that there have been studies on this, but I can imagine that students are probably easier to discipline yeah. in better designed environments because the environment themselves is communicating right. the value of them, it's communicating the, the sense of order as well as a sense of complexity. I mean, pattern complexity is one of the one of the principles that mm. I talk about a lot in the book. Right. Again, I'm I'm not aware of studies that have proved this, but everything that I write about in the book and all the studies that I did use to write the book right. suggests that that would be so. Well, that's very interesting. So, yeah, so in a way like kind of rigor and austerity in physical in environment built environments it's sort of metaphorical thinking. It's like maybe people trying to impose mm-hmm. what their idea of those things is on humans, but not in the way that actually tends humans in that direction. That supports yeah. them. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the ways that we appropriate and think about and apprehend the built environment is deeply metaphorical and associative. Right. And so precisely, I mean, that's part of the reason I could say, you know, you have an ordered wall that has, let's say, repeating lines of wood or something like right. that coming down. And, you know, we have all sorts of associations with those kinds of things just as if we look a little at a shanty that has you know a piece of corrugated metal tacked onto another different colored different corrugated metal and so on and so forth that's disorder right we feel these things bodily yeah i mean that's why i just can't help but think that like walking into that school building every day even though my son runs into it i mean gleefully likes it. at this point yeah. he loves his school great but that the visual metaphor there is prison. I mean, it uh-huh. is a big box with bars on the windows. They you know? all, they a lot. So many of them look like that, and it's it's not good. You're it right. Can't be good. I mean, it, it's draining creativity. I mean, it's and a sense of openness and so on in these environments. I actually have a friend who, when I was working on this book a few years ago, was talking about finding a place for her daughter to go to school. And she went to this one school and visited and went to a bunch of different schools. And then she was talking to another person and the other person said, oh, you can't send your daughter to that school because the physical environment is so awful. Mm. And my friend said, when she said that, I thought, ugh, you mean this is something else I have, I have to, to worry think about? about. Right. I mean, in New York, man, yeah. Oh you yeah. You're, you're. If if you want to think along those lines, you're you're putting yourself into some Options serious. Options are limited. Straitjacket. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. My high school was underneath the National Cathedral. It's like St. Uh-huh. Albans School for Boys, and I think of it as, and this is partly because I was like a humanities and arts guy, and it was a very like 
I don't know, politics and science focused place. Oh, uh-huh. So I think of it as sort of a Dickensian nightmare. I mean, it was like sort of like dark stone buildings with dark wood, and it uh-huh. all felt very scary to me. But then next to it, we had the National Cathedral, which was like this unfinished but symbol of like, I don't know, hope and aspiration. Uplifting and bright. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, and I had, a, I had a, a friend who was in the choir there, and we used to like sneak into the back ways and we get up onto the the, uh, the catwalk oh, up there fun. and look over DC. Oh, so that's great. interesting to have these two very strong contrasts in my environment. Right, you know? right. And and just to hear you talk about it, I mean, it goes back to the whole idea of a sense of identity and play and being constructed through the environment. You had this contrast between this dark, woody, depressing school and then this open, uplifting space. And, yeah. and that's sort of become a part of who you are. Yeah, I know. Can can we go back and do? I don't, <laughs> <laughs> undo Maybe that somehow. EMDRs. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, th- this is fascinating, and your book gives me hope that we will take these take some that these ideas will sort of become absorbed at the higher levels of our culture, and we'll actually make better decisions about architecture for the future. I hope so too. I certainly spent a lot of time trying to make it happen. Thank you so much, Sarah Goldman. Thank you. This is really great. Such a pleasure. So that wraps up another episode of Think Again. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Those of you who are new to the show, welcome. Uh, As I've been saying for the last few weeks, I've been having a lot of good email conversations with fans, new and long-standing. Feel free to drop me an email at jason at bigthink.com. I'm really interested in what you're liking, um, if if there are things you'd like to see happening or hear happening in the show, let me know. And I'm interested in you and like where you're listening and you know kind of what you're what you're getting out of this. Um, it's been really really fascinating, and I'm I'm writing back to pretty much everybody that's writing me. We have a lot of good shows coming up for you soon. We are very close to our 100th episode. I'm excited about this. We started this show two years ago, and in June we're coming up on the 100th episode, and we'll have a very special guest for you for that. So we're back next week with Dean Buonomano talking about the neuroscience of time. Uh, Really, really interesting stuff, and I hope you can join us. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.